0: You. That is me. <laughs> hey guys, how y'all doing? Fantastic. Well one, I'm really excited about what we're going to be doing over the next two weeks, because over the next two weeks, we are going to be taking your questions. Uh, no question is off, uh, can be off-kilter off subject. We want to be able to answer any questions you might have about God, Jesus, Bible, faith, I Don't think that's church. Been... Or anything like that. Will you please settle down? Thank you. All right, good. Um, hey, y'all, by the way, let me introduce everybody. I'm going to introduce our problem person first, uh, and that's Philip Christie. Uh, he has the loud mic, but he's a great guy. Can y'all give it up for Philip Christie? We also have uh, Patrick Fowler here. Patrick Fowler is our uh, small group pastor and our director of next steps here at One Church. And Patrick uh, has been here a long time, so been here four, maybe four more years or five summer. years. Four so. years As far as I know, so that's good. So y'all give it up for Pat. He is our token redhead on our staff. Um, so uh and then we have Luther, Luther Ramsey. Um Luther uh has uh been on staff in some capacity uh pretty much for the past seven, eight years. He actually he wasn't there with us at the movie theater when we launched, uh, but he was there about two months afterwards. Mm -hmm. So um Lou has been around a long time. Him and I are great friends and uh, uh, he has a lot of different passions. Um, so uh, glad having all of these three men and myself up here. And we want to be able to answer any question you might have. So I'm going to go ahead and pull out my phone um, so, uh, so that we can be able to get some of your questions. So uh, that question uh, number, uh, there's the prayer needs question. What's that next the question? There you go. 614 if you have any questions. Again, about anything. We'd love to be able to answer your questions about that. So we got a couple of questions last week. Uh, who would like to read one of those? Bueller. All, to find All right, here, I'll read one of them. Uh, um, where did giving burnt offerings come from, and why was that so important in the Old Testament? Seems like it was a huge part of the Old Testament, but wondering why. Why was that something required slash expected, or why did God even want that? That's a great question. Who would like to answer that?
1: I can talk about that a little bit. So... Um, You know, when we look at faith in the world, religion and faith, um, most people, myself before I was a Christian, come to God thinking we better earn our way. And I think the biggest thing we can say about sacrifice. All right, you keep on talking. Uh, The biggest thing we can say about sacrifice is that it is God's way of teaching us that it is not about earning our way. See, sacrifice for for Christians or Jews in the Old Testament was that you're in a courtroom, and no amount of good behavior gets you out of something that you've done. So if you're a murderer, you could have helped the la- old lady across the street every day of your entire life. And that's not going to get you out of the murder sentence. And sacrifice is like that. Something has to, somebody has to pay for your mistakes. And so when we look at that issue, sacrifice kind of breaks the mold of what, how we want to approach God. We want to approach him with our, our goodness, our good works. And sacrifice says, I'm not good enough. Somebody's got to take my place. In the Old Testament, that was an animal. It was God's way of representing the amount of um, the seriousness of, uh, of disobeying God. And, um, and the reason it went away in the New Testament uh, is for two specific reasons. One big one, and that is Jesus, when he died on the cross, um, he was the sacrifice. He was the ultimate one. And we don't need anything else to step in our way because Jesus, who lived a perfect life and died in our place, literally, if you're thinking in a courtroom, stepped in front of the judge and said, I will pay for this person's crimes. That's what Jesus did for us, and because he was a human being who did that for us, there's no more sacrifice needed. In fact, because he was the perfect human being, um, we now look perfect in God's sight. There's nothing on our record to condemn us. And then the other thing that's kind of interesting is that what happens shortly after Jesus comes and dies on the cross is that the place where Jews sacrificed the temple was destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 AD, and so for the past basically 2,000 years, the Jews have had no place to sacrifice even if they had wanted to because they had one official place where they could do that. And for Jews, um, the, the struggle that they have today is that there's not a sacrifice. For, there's not a place to take a sacrifice for their sins. So they try to they go back to the let me earn favor and let me step into that and uh, they try to do good works to make up for the fact that they can't bring an animal to
0: sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. So to to repeat kind of what you said, Pat, animal sacrifices in the Old Testament did not take away sin. Mm-hmm. Correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, they just pretty much kind of pushed that sin payment back. Mm-hmm. But when Jesus Christ came, he died once and for all to take care of the sin of the world. Right. Okay, very good. Very good. That's a great question. Really, really good question. Somebody else? Anybody else have a question? Anybody else go that? Yep, that may be me now. Uh, anyone? All right, I'll read another one. Very good. Let's. Sit. This is the next one. It says this. Uh, also... Um, why does God seem so angry or intolerant in the Old Testament compared to the God that we know in the New Testament? How would, uh, how would just, uh, he would just allow people to obliterate one another or, or he would do it himself? All right, quick question. Anybody has ever been that, you, you've been concerned about the God of the Old Testament seems a lot different than the God of the New Testament? Anybody else? You'd be so bold to raise your hand. I, I've been there. I have. Um, it seems like the God of the Old Testament just seemed really angry, and the God of the New Testament, He finally, you know, maybe got some medication and uh, and, and kind of evened him out. And uh, it, you know, even though I joke about that, I'll simply say this: that I believe that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. Uh, he hasn't changed. In fact, uh, there's verses all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that says that God does not change; uh, that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why? does god seem uh so different in the old testament than he does in the new and i would simply say this is because uh god actually he uh, communicated and he worked with people in the old testament under a certain covenant this is very important for you to to kind of get a grasp on because all throughout the bible uh god uh he works with people through these different agreements and so that's what a covenant is And in the Old Testament, uh, his covenant was made with his people, the Israelites. uh, And it pretty much goes all the way back to Abraham. And that covenant, uh, he kept on saying, I want you to listen to me, I want you to obey me. I want you to listen to me, and I want you to obey me. And the problem with the Israelites is that many times they wouldn't listen, and if they did, they wouldn't obey. And uh, you probably know what that feels like. Anybody has children. Mm -hmm. Dear Lord, right? I mean, how many times have you told them, to, you know, put your stuff away when you get home from school. It's just like, ah, right? And, and God, I, I really do, in a lot of ways, felt the same way that you and I feel. So uh, he, he, uh, that's one of those uh, revelations that come that, that, you know, we can't do it on our own. There's all throughout the, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It says that uh, our righteousness are like filthy rags in Isaiah. Uh, we have all sinned and gone astray. The same chapter in Isaiah. Um, that uh, in Romans three twenty three, all of sin and fallen short of God's glorious ideal. So it's like we could not do it. So Jesus came and did it for ourselves. Now let me say this: I throw another little wrinkle in here. Is many times when we look at like Joshua and some of these other places, it says, "I want you to go and I want you to destroy everyone." That seems unfair, and I get that. But here is the thing: you got to realize is we don't know what God was doing in those cultures. Because it's not in the Bible. You see, God has given us his word, but that doesn't contain everything that he's done. In fact, this is what's so interesting, Uh, Pat. I remember going and learning about this when I went to seminary. In Genesis, when uh, Abraham meets uh, the high priest Melchizedek, right? I don't know how to spell it, but I can say it. Uh, He came from the Canaanite people that God was doing some work in the Canaanite people, supposedly the Israelites' enemies, before there was any, any, any Israelites whatsoever. So, uh, and evidently, the Canaanites rejected God. So again, God ended up working through the Israelites. So, um, uh, and, and the Canaanite people was left uh, and to pretty much get the consequences of their sin. So, I just think that's interesting to say, okay, from outside looking in, that doesn't seem fair. And some things I just don't know about. You just have to be okay with the tension. So anybody else want to answer that a little bit yeah, differently? I, I want to jump on that. Yeah, it's funny. Ahead. I
2: kind of went the same direction you did when I looked at this question last night. Um, kind of the first thing that came to mind was parenting. You know, we, we've been singing the song, Good, Good Father, and um, talking about God as a perfect father. And, you know, I've, I father a few children. And, um, and so I have, like, my own basketball team with some yeah, sons. Hundred, right? And so, but one of the things you have to do as a parent is if you tell a child... If you do this, I will do this. And you see parents who say, if you do this, I will do this. And then they don't. And then they don't. And then they don't. And what they have done is they've created a child that none of us want to be around. They're awful. You know, they don't think there's consequences to their actions. Um, And and one of the things we say in our house a lot is that discipline creates self-discipline. That the reason that we're disciplining you is so that eventually you'll step out and discipline yourself, and I won't have to. Uh, I had this conversation actually last night. I was like, I don't want to get on to you. Like I told you once, if I didn't have to tell you nine more times, that would not ruin my day. Uh, and so I just think there was this thing that, you know, one of the things I like to talk about God in the collective when we meet on Tuesday nights is a couple ideas, that one, God is enough. That, that whatever it is you need God to be enough of, he is. And, and I think that as we see God through the Old Testament and the New Testament, we can begin to see that. Because God promises to be present and God promises to love us and God promises to never forsake us. And if you need strength, he's strength. And if you need to forgive someone in a way that you're not capable of, then God through the Holy Spirit will give you a level of forgiveness you don't possess. If God, like for me, it's smelly people. I struggle with smells, So God's always going to put someone in front of me that needs to be loved who smells. Uh, met a homeless guy Friday night at dinner, and I went and bought him a tent and it 's not a great thing about me someone actually bought my dinner, so it was actually I still came out net gain on that, which was weird but like this this nice man smelled really bad, and God always does that like i 'm going to struggle to love people when they smell and I, it makes me sound very immature as a Christian, I know, but smells are my problem and so but what I see is that God is enough, and I see that all through the Old Testament and the New Testament because God was consistent in what he said, and God God is truth, and God is justice, and God is love. Those aren't things he chooses to do. And so if God says in the Old Testament, if you do this, I will bless you, and if you don't, then I will punish you, what we can see is that when God then brings Jesus, and we're given the message that if you place your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, and if you believe that he is the one way to me, I will give you eternal life, and I will bless you because of his history in the old testament we can believe that and when god says if you do not do these things you will be etern- uh, eternally separated from me we call that hell when you die we can believe that because we saw god as a god of justice all through the old testament when he told people he would punish them if they did not follow his, his what he wanted them to do he punished them and so I- as we look at the gift of jesus christ we can know that it's true and we can know that god is just and we can know that if, if we do the things he says we will get the blessings he promises us
1: okay. one more quick thing on the positive side you yeah. know we talk about God being more graceful in the New Testament but god 's big picture story is complete in Jesus and when that goes forth it is positive and it is transformational and a lot of times the way we, the reason we look at um, Jesus is being so positive is because he is completing the picture of what God wants. And that completed picture is so persuasive that the world is literally coming to Christianity as their faith. I mean, it's so funny. English-speaking Christians used to be the dominant group of people for almost 2,000 years that European... Flavor of Christianity was was the dominant group of people. But actually, Spanish-speaking Christians outnumber us now and Chinese people outnumber us now in terms of Christian faith. And that's really exciting. There are more Christians in the world today than there has ever been before. And it's because when Jesus completed God's big picture, it is so persuasive that the, that the world literally in, in droves is turning to Jesus. And we live in a very positive time. doesn't mean that it won't get negative or that it doesn't have big negatives. I mean, we could talk about wars today versus wars in the Old Testament, how many people, how many lives are lost. But we do live in a very golden age in terms of faith going forward. Mm. And that's exciting.
0: That's really exciting. Mm. Cool. Awesome. Anybody else want to add anything to that? All right. Uh, got this question in. Um, I have heard many Christian leaders refer to many issues as Bonhoeffer moments. These include, but not are limited to, gay marriage, bathroom access, and other social issues. What is a Bonhoeffer moment in... If you had to pick one, what is our Bonhoeffer moment today? All right. Uh, I don't think I'm going to comment on that. Next question. I'm just joking. (laughs) That was supposed to be funny. Um, Anyway, I'll be honest with you. This is one of those things that uh, our media is blowing up right now, and and, and it's in the front of everybody's mind. So let me go back and let me answer the easier question, what is a Bonhoeffer moment? Because I had to Google it. Okay, yeah, I was going to say I'm Googling it (laughs) if you need that. So So I had to Google it. Do you have it? I have it here in front of me too. I have
1: the headline says... uh, Leaders vow civil disobedience if,
0: basically, if the government goes against them. Okay. So So let me tell you a little bit about who uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. Again, not a guy in the Bible, but it is a guy in church history. Uh, He lived during the time of World War II. Uh, He was a pastor, and um, I don't know a lot about his life, but I do know that it got to the point with his life that he had a a choice to make. Uh, he, He was a Christian who lived in Nazi Germany, and uh, was he going to follow Adolf Hitler? Or was he going to rebel against Hitler? And what Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, chose was to, uh, to uh, in this plot, to assassinate Hitler. So, um, so anyway, uh, so basically the whole idea is civil disobedience. What do you do with that? Uh, let's, uh, t- now, that's the easy part. Let's answer some of this other question when it comes to gay marriage, transgender, bathrooms, things of that nature. I feel like... And we're going to talk about this in a couple of months when we, uh, uh, we're doing a series again called uh, What Would Jesus Say To? And we're going to uh, ask the question, what would Jesus say to Caitlyn Jenner? So that'll be a fun one. Um, so, uh, but I, I think one of the things that we have to remember is we're not called to be able to proselytize and to, to create this religious right. Uh, so many times we as Christ followers, we go up in arms and we boycott and we do these things to be able to try to, to move our country in the way that we think it should go. And again, uh, uh, the Bible is very clear about some of these things, and, but I think one of the things that we have to do is when you look at Jesus' example, Jesus' example, when he showed up, did he try to picket or change Rome and their laws or their government? The answer is no. He didn't when Jesus showed up he had a very singular mission and that mission is found in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 and when it says this that Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. So if that is Jesus's mission he did not allow politics or even uh, religious kooks of the day or anything like that to be able to get him off mission. He said, I am going to, I'm going to minister to, <clears throat> excuse me, to everyone. And here's what's so amazing about this. And I got this quote uh, from uh, 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 um, a, uh, a conference I attended a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it's this whole idea that Jesus ministered to everyone, no matter of what their actions. And if, if somebody's actions will prevent us from serving them, then we're saying that we're better than Jesus and we have a higher standard than Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus served everyone. And no matter what they were struggling with, no matter if they didn't have it all together, you know, think about this. He didn't play by the whole guilt by association game, did he? Anybody grew up and your mom said, if you hang out with them, you know, you're going to be associated because they're guilty, right? I mean, if if he would have done guilt by association, Jesus would have just stayed in heaven. And he would have never hung out with any of us. But Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners... Jesus died for us. Now, what's so amazing about this is if Jesus didn't try to change the culture or religion or even the um, government of that day, but he came to stay on focus, and his whole answer was to love. For God so what? Love the world that he gave, his one and only son. Then that should be our mission as well. That we ought to love everyone well. No matter what their lifestyle, no matter what their political view, no matter if they vote for Trump or Clinton, because that's who it looks like is going to be the the front runners, if you will, it doesn't really matter because God is in control of who is in control. That y'all going to get me preaching? God is in control of, of who is in control. Does anybody agree with that statement? Yeah, somebody be alive out there! Come on now. <laughs> If God is in control of who is in control, then it doesn't matter if a donkey or an elephant gets in the White House. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what laws they pass. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. What matters is, is Jesus in control of who's in control? And if that is the case, then you know what? Whatever laws are passed, we're not going to freak out about it. Because our job isn't to change laws. Our God is to love people so that God can change hearts. I'm saying we... Bam! If we... Uh, Let me uh, have we, the mic. Don't <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. All right. I,
1: to your point, I mean, we firmly believe in the, the philosophy we approach ministry with is if we can get people to fall in love with Jesus, we think morality will, will change for them. And if enough people meet Jesus and their morality changes, the laws will change. Mm. And our goal, if there is a goal to change laws, is to change hearts. And if we change enough hearts, we'll change laws eventually. So that's good. Um, sorry. I yeah, I wouldn't go into that's the applause. So let me give one to Philip, because I know Philip's got one that um, is really good that I want to answer. And it, it's um, the question says, the books of the Bible were written over a long time span. I don't know if you guys know, there's 66 books, 40 different authors in, in scripture. It's really a collection of things, not so much a book itself. And, and uh, the question is, how and where were they all found and gathered into one book? And who originally started kind of compiling that together?
3: Yeah, so the books of the Bible, they actually, going from Scripture, what our New Testament authors would have used, that would have been mainly the books of the Old Testament. That's your books of the prophets, uh, the, the Jewish Talmud, the first five books of the Bible, things like that. Um, all of these, they were pretty much just widely accepted, and they never really, there was no real compiling of it. Uh, leading into the New Testament, you had the early church fathers, which pretty much, they had their own writings. These were pretty much taken as authoritative. Just in general, there was no real, there was no compiling. I know when I was at Austin P, I uh, I had one of my professors tell us that at the Council of Nicaea in 425, a group of men got together and they decided which books were going to be in the Bible. And that's just simply not true. Uh... What happened was in the early or late second century, early third century, several people started teaching things that were contrary to the general understanding of scripture, and they had to answer for these things. So they had different councils. The Council of Nicaea was to uh, try to understand the doctrine of Arianism, and which was deemed her- heretical, uh, but there was nothing that actually put the books of the Bible together. Uh, They were just accepted as authoritative. Now, when it came, a problem was when certain books of the Bible, or certain books that started coming up in the area of the Gnostic Gospels, which Gnostic comes from Gnosis, there was this whole heretical movement where there was this group of people that were all about secret knowledge. And they came up with these books that are called pseudoprographal books. This means false-authored. So your Gospel of Judas and Thomas, these just magically appear in late 2nd century, early 3rd century. And they ran contrary to what was already accepted to be true. They always offered this, just this secret path to salvation. It, it just, it ran completely contrary. So a little bit later at the Council of Trent and the Council of Carthage, they affirmed most of the books of Scripture... In fact, all the ones that we see in the New Testament. So, yeah, we, we have basically established grounds on which books we can reject, things like that. So Thomas, Mary Magdalene, Judas, stuff like that's rejected. But the books of the
0: New Testament that we have today in our Canaan, those are authoritative. That's, that's a good point. There's a great resource about this if you want to read some more about it. It's called... Um uh, Breaking the Da Vinci Code by Daryl Bach, one of uh, Patrick and I's seminary professors at Dallas Seminary. And if you've, if you've seen the movie Da Vinci Code, it's pretty awful. If you've read the book, it's really good um, uh, because books are always better than movies usually. Um, but some of the jacked up stuff that's in the, the Da Vinci Code, uh, pretty much all of it comes from the Gospel of Thomas. In fact, there's a, there's a Jesus movie coming out where Jesus is a boy. And I, what, Does anybody know what it's called? Um, It's just it's only of Jesus as a boy, and what's so funny when I saw the preview of that, I'm like, well, that's going to be a short movie because we uh, only have like a few, like three or four verses from the Gospel of Luke that talks about Jesus as a boy. So I'm thinking, okay, they're going to read that. You know, two minutes later, you know, you're done. Uh, But what has unfortunately happened is they've created this Jesus movie as a boy, and they've gotten a lot of the this stuff from the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene and some of these other pseudepigraphous writings um, that just kind of popped up uh, very quickly. Uh, and like uh, Philip just explained, and uh, they're just some messed up stuff. Because here's what's so cool about this. We have, y'all, y'all feel with me right now. We have, of the like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the 27 books of the New Testament. We have copies not extant copies, pieces of every one of those 27 books. I mean, some, some of them dating to 80 years to 100 years after Jesus died. And then, three, 400 years later, bing, we have these, oh, the Gospel of Thomas just popped up. And it's pseudepigrapha, and he explained this because somebody wrote it, that's the pigrapha, pseudo under a false name. Somebody says, well, I'll try to uh, wreck Christianity, so I'll say I'm Thomas, and I'll write all this weird smut out there. So, And that's what it is. It's toilet paper. Merry Christmas. Well,
1: YouTube gives us a modern-day portrayal of this. Any popular movie, if you go on YouTube, you can find these people making parodies of it. There's hundreds of parodies of Star Wars um, things in In that day and age, it was harder to you had to get together and talk about what you observed and where this came from that you heard about it mm. uh, in our day, you can do a lot of that research personally and and individually, so they had to get together to make decisions about where did this really come from? when did you guys first see it did i did I miss this? Was it there a hundred years ago or, or is it just now showing up and they got together at councils that 's what they were called and had some of those discussions but Sweet. their their decisions are documented. Like you said, a good book will explain in detail a yeah. lot of that stuff.
0: So quick question about you, Philip. T- tell, uh, tell everybody kind of about your background, your schooling, some of that stuff.
3: Yeah, so I'm a senior philosophy student at Austin P. have served as the president of the philosophy club for a year and a half. And uh, I was, I took a lot into organizing debates and discussions and participating in those debates and discussion, primarily surrounding the existence of God and uh, some other
0: random issues. Sweet. Fun. His passion is something called apologetics, mm-hmm. which uh, – how would you explain apologetics, Patrick?
1: It's answering questions like the ones that are being asked. Does God exist? How do we know? Um, is he a good God? How do we know? It's, it's kind of answering those questions in a relevant way to the yeah. current generation. So it actually comes from 1 Peter 3.15, which always says,
3: Be prepared to make a defense for the reason of hope, the hope that's within you. And where it says to make a defense, that comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to
0: make a defense. Would you call me? <laughs> <Just playing>. Yep.
1: And <laughs> just a plug, too yeah. the group that Philip uh, leads here at One Church in connection with Austin P is a group that discusses these big faith questions and really digs deep into them. So if you're the kind of person who those are kind of the questions you want to ask, Good. we have one group that's very definitely for you, and the other groups are probably not. Quite the same fit. So. That's good.
0: So, sweet. So we got another question. Who wants to read that? Tons of questions.
1: Here's, um, I, I really like this one. Uh, someone said, I never read the Old Testament. After an, Adam and Eve, um, they had Cain and Abel. And then what happened? Who did Cain marry? You know, who did Abel marry? What, what happened there? Because one killed the other. And, you know, so who wants to take that one? So uh, I'll,
2: I'll give you the easy version. So like, there's a lot of stuff I want to know. Like, I want to know where dinosaurs fit in and um, all that stuff. And and so at some point for me, faith had to look like just going, hmm. Well, so what's going to happen for me when I get to heaven is I'm going down to the mosh pit in front of Jesus. I don't want to be in the back. I want to go down front where the action is. I want to get right down front and jump around for about 100,000 years. Uh, I'm looking for like the red hot chili peppers version of worship in the, in heaven. So that's where I'm going and I'm going to get down there and worship for about, a, about a hundred thousand years. And then I figure at some point we're going to get a break to go eat like some food because I believe, I believe God says heaven will be perfect. So <laughs> lots of good food. Um, and then I'm going to my mansion and the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to throw on the heaven learning channel. And I'm going to sit there and I'm going to get answers to all my questions. And I know that sounds dumb, but like for me, that's just where faith had to figure this out. Because for me, if I knew all the answers, it wouldn't be faith. It would just be knowledge. And there would never be this point where I had to stand and look at something and go, I got to take a step that I just don't know. And, 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 and for me, that's just what that had to come down to. And, and I, maybe I'm simple, but... I don't like that I don't know those things. I mean, I'm not simple in the sense that I don't have questions and I don't want to know. I, I don't get to have the mind of God. Uh, and if I could fully understand God, he wouldn't be much of a God. He wouldn't be worth worshiping and serving and loving. And so that's just where I land on that. Like I said, that's probably the least technical answer you'll get
3: up here, but that's just where I fall.
0: Cool. Anybody else want to answer that?
3: Yeah, just a short, short ad. Okay. Genesis 5-4 is where it says that, so if you you want to ask the question, where did Cain get his wife? Uh, All it says in Genesis 5-4 is that they had other sons and daughters. And most likely, the world was populated at that particular time, at least a little bit, to where he actually could... Off and marry somebody.
1: I have a feeling she, Eve, was kind of like one of the, the Duggar ladies. She was, she just liked having kids. <laughs> oh I'm not trying gosh. to be mean, but um, I think there were <laughs> that just a happened. significant, yeah, group of kids in that first family. So. That just happened. for the record, that wasn't
2: Chris that said that, <laughs> right? I or me, even. <laughs> I mean, this is the dangerous side. You should just know this is the dangerous side of the I'm stage. I'm going to say some stuff that's I'm going to have the to apologize side. for,
0: it, but Patrick. <laughs> Eve was like the Duggar family. <laughs> Drop the mic. All right, we're done. I, I, let me also say this. Uh, we don't know if God created more people. He might have. He might have. Um, I, but you've got to remember, uh, when Adam and Eve, what, what was the one uh, rule that God gave Adam and Eve? Everybody remember? Don't eat the tree of the fruit in the, in the, in the middle, basically, right? After that, the, the Ten Commandments was not given yet. All of these commandments was not given yet, which means they had some freedom to do some things that if we did today would be inappropriate and wrong. So one or two things happened. Either God created some more people and Cain married uh, a wife, or um, during that time, because the Ten Commandments and God's law was not written... Uh, what could have happened was that Cain married a sister. And thank you to Maury Povich and uh, all that. But, I mean, if you think about it, it sounds like, right? But at that point, there wasn't anything wrong with that. God had not said this is wrong or this is right. And, again, uh, you're welcome. uh, There's a great uh, website called Mm gotquestions.org, and you can uh, read that and read some of those uh, different ideas on that as well. So great question. I don't know if we really answered it to your satisfaction, but I blame that on Luther. So, anyway, what's the next question? Are you, are you getting these questions? Yeah, I got
2: it now. Okay, cool. uh, here, I'll read it. Um, a little help with forgiveness. Hmm. Understanding what Jesus says about forgiveness, what do we do with an unrepentant adult child that we know will break our heart at every opportunity? Um, I wanna, I'll take this real quick, and then I'll let someone else speak. Uh, the, uh, just an easy verse on that's Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And, and for me, there's a very that's a personal moment. Um, many of you know my wife and I adopted about almost four years ago, and uh, it was a really hard first year, um, to say the least. And um, it, to go through an international adoption means you cash in your 401k, and you sell stuff, and people give you money. And it's just awful, because I'm a very prideful person, and I don't like people to help me and do things for me. And And then you bring these children home and you think they're going to be like thankful. And what you don't realize, and you you do like intellectually, you know it because you do training and, but you think they're going to be thankful and what they are is they're ripped out of their culture and they're orphans who've lost parents and they come home and they look you in the eye at times and they say things like, I hate you, I want you to die and I don't want to be here anymore. And I remember a Thursday night that I was home with the kids alone, and Rhonda was uh, at Minivan Mayhem, um, and my daughter looked me in the face and said that. And my face could not register that, and I just had to tell her what we always told her was, I love you, and I'm sorry that you're not where you grew up, and I'm going to love you forever, and this is your family. And then I put her to bed, and I went in the living room, and I was angry, like really angry. And the next day, we left to take our students to Gatlinburg on a weekend retreat. And the entire weekend, students kept coming up to me and wanting, to, wanting me to explain to them if God could continue to forgive them when we sin and when we disappoint them. And how many sins do I have to do before God stops forgiving? And, and at one point, it finally hit me. And I just remember thinking, God, I knew this answer already. Like intellectually, you didn't have to do that to my heart Thursday night for me to explain to a child that I get up every day fully knowing the cost that God paid to have a relationship with me. What we read in the Old Testament is the love story of God pursuing us and proving that his word was true so that when he sent Jesus kind of back to that first question, he paid everything for me. Forget you. For me, he paid everything. And some days I get up and I look God squarely in the eye and I say, I don't love you I don't want to do this your way and I'm going to do what I want. And God stands there and he looks me in the eye and he says, but I love you and you're my son and there's nothing you could do that would ever make me stop loving you. And that's the picture of that question. You're, you're going to forgive because God through his Holy Spirit is going to give you a level of forgiveness that you don't understand. I always tell... We work with young adults and I always tell them... The best thing about being an adult is you get to choose who hurts you. And so at some point... You can love someone without allowing them to hurt you. you can, now, it may cost you something. It may cost you your family. It may cost you relationships. But you can walk away from pain. Uh, I'm not talking about... Marriage is a whole other topic. Marriage is a commitment to be miserable with someone for the rest of your life... And some days are better. But, but in other relationships... Like, if someone is hurting you, you can forgive them and step away. Like, I know, I, I know I've counseled people who've been raped and, and hurt, like as children or as adults. And, and, and we counsel them to forgive. We just tell them, don't ever go near that person again. Um, and, and I even got some guys at one church who are still working on Christianity. And if they come near you again, tell me. Like, we'll send them to take care of it before they get saved. Because we got, like, fifth group guys and stuff. They'll never find a body. So...
1: But go ahead. Only addition to your point, Lou, is in the New Testament, Peter has the same question and he comes to Jesus and he says, I'm gonna be gracious. Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And he says, And I'll how about seven times? Doesn't it sound like a good answer, Jesus? Seven times and they're done. And Jesus says, Seven times seventy, which in that culture basically means stop counting. Stop counting. And if the Son of God can say that to somebody who directly asks the question, then I think he says the exact same thing to us. And uh, that's harder when you're the person who has to forgive. Well, and we even see that but, again
2: later with Peter. Mm-hmm. Peter has to form a relationship with Paul. The same Paul that used to be Saul, who we know was there and had Stephen killed. One of Peter's real... Someone who was very close to Peter. Someone who had traveled with peter and served jesus and and so and we don't even know how many people saul had killed who were christians but peter and paul had to come to a place of relationship how hard must must that have been for peter to say i have to trust you to lead us in starting the church not just like we're gonna live in the same city and if i pass you on the street i'm not gonna like take a sword and like stab you but like we have
0: to do ministry together Mm-hmm. And, and so Peter had to live that out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was a struggle. It was a struggle for Peter. And uh, one person just, you know, uh, texted me this. You know, you have to forgive but not be enabling. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a great insight as well. You know, just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean that you have to give them the farm every time. You know, if somebody keeps on, give uh, me give you an example. Let's talk about you, Lou. You know, if you came and you, uh, you wanted to borrow 200 bucks, all right? And uh, you say, hey, Chris, I'm going to pay it back, and I give you the $200. There you go. And then a few weeks later, hey, Lou, uh, can I get my $200 back? And you say, absolutely not. I'm never going to pay you back, right? Um, Let me tell you what the exact word for forgiveness means. Forgiveness means where you're telling somebody, you don't owe me anymore. So uh, I would say, okay, I forgive you, which means, guess what? Does he owe me $200 anymore? No. Now... I've forgiven Luther. Luther comes back two months later. Hey, can I
2: I borrow $200?
0: And I'm going to say, I love you very much. No. (laughs) Right? Now, have I forgiven him? Yes, because he doesn't owe me anymore. But I ain't got to make it rain on him. And he just, "Ah," you know, Uh, that that would be foolish. We We have to put up boundaries. And there's a great book. Let me tell you what it's called. It's called Boundaries. By uh, Clark and Townsend, right? A cloud in Townsend, excuse me. And it's a great Christian book that talks about, okay, how you can forgive, but you have to create boundaries so that people don't keep on and on and on and where you're enabling them. That's a great word. Um, thank you so much for your text that. Can I just,
2: I've been working with someone who was hurt in about every way possible by somebody. And we've been having to figure out what does it look like to forgive somebody. And so for this person, we had to come up with a very, the most basic definition of forgiveness. I could help this person in trying to forgive the person who's hurt them. And the definition that we're operating on now until we can move on to something else is not wanting that person to go to hell being okay with that person receiving the same grace and love and forgiveness from God that you do. And for some of you that have been hurt deeply, like someone stole your childhood or stole your innocence or like that may be all you're capable of. And and I would say that if you're going to pray for something, if you're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to give you something, start there. You don't, have, you don't have to wish blessings on their life. You don't have to wish that they hit the lotto. You don't have to pray that God gives them a perfect husband or wife. But you've got to, you've got to pray and understand that God loves them the same way that he loves you. And it, it, it's not fair. And it doesn't make sense. And, and nothing about God, for the most part to me, is fair or does make sense. Um, because if God was fair, none of us would get to go to heaven. Like none of us are going to earn our way to heaven, right? It's, it's all through grace. And so some of you, that may be what you need to be praying for right now, that that person who hurt you so deeply, that you're okay, that God's going to reach out to them, that the Holy Spirit's going to work in their life in such a way that they're going to be drawn to God. And that if they accept that, they get to go to heaven just like you. And then maybe later God will give you some additional level of forgiveness. But, but if you're struggling with forgiveness for someone, I would offer you that as maybe the, your first step in forgiving someone. Mm,
1: absolutely. There's one more question I want to touch on before we, we go. Um, it says, I believe God has a plan. I believe he can turn all bad for good. But how do you explain or rationalize all the horrible things that happen in the world? Or all the good faithful people who are not healed, uh, whose lives don't work out despite their unwavering faith? How do you continue to be faithful and not get angry or bitter when it seems like your life is working out according to his plan? But it's pretty much going to suck for a while. If not forever, for a very long time. I love the honesty. Let me just say this. I love the honesty of that question, and thank you. Mm-hmm. I've kind of been here myself this week. I, I've got a friend who's my age that I learned probably has terminal cancer. And it's very hard for me to think he's going to leave kids behind. Um, it's very hard for me to think he deserves to have to walk through that. And, um, and I've struggled. And it's, this is the reason people run away from God. They go, if he's really good, why is the world so bad? If he's really good, why is this person I love? Usually it's a person that you think of struggling so much. And what I would say is the thing I love most about the Bible is it's real. And there are constant reminders of that. There's constant people venting just real emotions to God. And I would say it is not wrong to be angry with God. It's not wrong to be frustrated or upset. Or confused. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's the best thing you can do is vent all of that to God. That's the whole book of Psalms. That's the majority right. of that is mm-hmm. venting anger and got, right. to God. And there are a couple of lines where he even says, I want this person to go to hell, God. Like, I really want this person to go to hell. And he's processing the anger and the emotion. The worst thing we can do is to bottle that up or to run from God because God ultimately holds the answer to that. And the best advice I can give you as a pastor is surround yourself with friends, Um, and keep the line open to God and let both people speak into your life. Let the friends be there to love on you and let God have room when the time is right to give you the answer that you're seeking for. And uh, the one thing you'll walk away from is not the answer. The one thing you'll walk away from a difficult time like that is knowing God's with you, knowing God was there in the midst of that struggle. And that will mean so much more than some answer that we can give you from stage or that God could even give you in print.
0: Pat, would you mind praying for those people right now who... Uh, maybe are feeling anger towards God, anger towards somebody else, and they're struggling through forgiveness.
1: Father, um, this is the hard thing, God. We're in a very imperfect world. And I struggle, God, I really do. I've been angry with you this week over a friend of mine who I don't want to lose, and I don't want to even see suffer. And so I pray, Father, that today that you'll be with us who are in a difficult time of life. We're in a bitter, um, we have a bitter attitude. I hope pray that you'll receive our anger and our bitterness and that, Father, beyond that you will just blanket us with your comfort and your presence so that we know, even though we don't feel like we have the answers, we know that you're there with us. In Jesus' name I pray.